What is up, podcast community? My name is Michael Chernow, and this is the Creatures of Habit podcast. Habits are everything, and on this show, I will be interviewing some of the most inspiring, motivated, and high-performing humans on the planet to learn about the daily habits, routines, and rituals that help keep them focused, determined, on top of their game, and ultimately, happy. My journey from the depths of addiction and misery to success as a family man and serial entrepreneur was only made possible by replacing bad habits with great ones. And my mission in life today is to share that story and the story of others with you to bring value and life-changing tools to as many people as possible. So sit back, relax, and pay attention because what you hear in this podcast today can potentially change your life. Let's go. Welcome back. Another episode of Mile 40, and we are wrapping up season three. Today's guest is a very exciting guest. Um, This is someone whose journey I've been following for a couple of years now, um, and um, the right keys hit, and I was able to get in front of him uh, to round out the season. Um, So without further ado, I want to introduce you all to Michael Chernow. Michael uh, most recently founded Creatures of Habit, an in-your-face lifestyle and wellness brand, reimagining how you establish healthy habits of life. Before launching Creatures of Habit, he cultivated an extraordinary career for himself, receiving an associate's degree in both culinary arts and restaurant management from the French Culinary Institute. He channeled his fire for culinary and community by curating and building some of New York's most beloved restaurants. Some of these names will be very familiar to you all. He opened the Meatball Shop in 2009 with childhood friend Daniel Holzman. In 2015, he founded Seymour's, a Manhattan restaurant that combines Michael's love of fishing and culinary expertise, expanding to five locations, peppered across New York City. I'm going to stop right there because that is just scratching the surface of some of the things that you've done. Michael, thanks for coming on board today. Brother, I'm so excited to be here. I, uh, I I carved out a mustache for you specifically. <laughs> I love it. No, it's looking great. Um, so, you know, just kind of running through that bio, everything seems really rosy. But as we know, uh, your path was, was far from linear. Um, and, you know, we discussed the Mile 40 pad- podcast is really here to dive into those pit to peak moments in life and then talk about the trajectory on upwards. Um, and one of the things that I really respect about you in particular is that you go out of your way um, to make sure that you know, the people on the outside know how much you value your family um, and how they've been there for you along the way. And for me, as, as a new father, um, it really stood out to me because it says to me that despite the fact that your path was not linear, your perspective is really sharp. Um, do you want to tone in a little bit, maybe give us some background with regards to where it started? What happened before 2009 and before the creation of the meatball shop? Yeah, for sure. Um, the story is. It's a long one. It is, um, it's seen some incredible highs and some really, really, really dark and lonely lows. I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Manhattan. I went to public school. So I was amongst an enormous amount of kids in the 80s and 90s. I would argue to say the cultural epicenter in the United States at that time. I would argue to say that New York City happens to be like the cultural epicenter of the world in many respects. Um, And so I was 
I was exposed to a lot as a young kid. I grew up in a very small apartment. My mother was a secretary and a loving human being. My father was a very sick person, both mentally and, and physically. He was on permanent disability and mentally ill. That made growing up in that household very, very difficult because he and I, no matter what, at all ages, could not see eye to eye from as early as I can remember, you know, five years old. And so I, 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 I had a lot of trauma that I'm insanely grateful for today. And I say that honestly and genuinely. I'm, gr I'm grateful for all the things that I had to work through because I wouldn't be me without them, you know? And so there was a lot of, there was a lot of abuse in my household. My father was very, um, you know, it started out as, as verbal abuse and emotional abuse. And then ultimately as I got older, it evolved into a far more physically abusive situation. I've done a lot of work on myself over the years and I've peeled back a lot of the onion to learn that a lot of the decisions that I have made in my adult life have been a direct reflection of emotional moments, emotional scars from my childhood. And um, I could I could say that. <laughs> but if I'm if I'm if I'm actually not like actively self aware of it, they still show up in my life. Right. I've done a lot of work on this, like the our our brain's ability to emotionally freeze time. It's really interesting. Anyway, so I grew up in this household. There was a lot of trauma and I was looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, I, I was I, I, I found a, a sports coach at an early age who I loved. He was who he, he taught me all. You know, he taught me about sports. He was a he was a a really nice person, but he was also a pedophile. And I didn't know at the time, but he molested me and a bunch of other kids that were also kind of come from, you know, come from broken homes, but I loved him. I really did. I, 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 I thought that was like, that was the love that I was looking for at the time. You know, I, I didn't know that it, I, I wasn't raped or anything like that, but you know, there was definitely inappropriate behavior, but he, he really treated me like a, like what I thought a father should treat a son, you know, like he took me out fishing and playing sports and all those things. And, uh, and, and that was also like, um, like, a like once I, once I realized that that had happened, I was like, holy smokes, you know, this is, this is rough. Um, anyway, when I was around 12 or 13 years old, I had turned to drugs and alcohol and it was like awesome because I really do believe that it saved my life, uh, my reliance on alcohol and drugs, because I was at that point, you know, I'd been, I'd been admitted to pain when mental institution at 12 for attempted suicide. You know, I was, I was really in a rough, you know, it was, it was, a, it was tough. And so I found drugs and alcohol as like my savior and I latched onto it and I gave up all the sports and I really dove deep into that world. And for, for 10 years, I blew off everything else in my life. I had moved out of my parents' house when I was 15. I was running the streets in New York. I was doing drugs. I was selling drugs. I was, you know, I was always with the wrong people. Somehow I, 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 
did not get arrested and thrown into jail for long periods of time, but I probably could have and should have. And uh, it was great until it wasn't great anymore. It's it, it helped me a lot to manage some of the things that I was dealing with at that young age and didn't know where else to turn. But once I got into my late teens and early 20s, it was no longer saving me. It was actually killing me because I, w- I was using it so abusively. And when I was 23, you know, there was a lot of stuff that happened in there. I mean, I was yeah. a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff, uh, as you can imagine, New York City. But uh, one thing I will say is that I got a job when I was 12 years old. And that also, I think, was an aha moment for me that I could be self-sustainable. Like I, I could support myself if I had to, because I got a job in a restaurant and I was making a lot of money as a young kid. I was, uh, I was, I started out as a delivery boy. Then I moved into the kitchen as a prep cook. Then I went onto the floor as a bus boy. And, and I was making like, you know, 50 to 80 bucks a night um, in this restaurant. And so I fell in love with the restaurant business. I also learned in the restaurant business at that young age that I could be whoever I wanted to be there. I didn't have to be me. I could be anyone who I wanted to be. I could walk into work as a totally normal person. You know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to, you know, and and it got me out of my, out of my parents' house at night. So I, I worked in restaurants the whole entire time that I was, you know, on the other side of addiction. And I'm grateful for, for those years. When, when I was 23, I had overdosed on heroin and I had been using drugs. So, and drinking so much, I, you know, when you're in the, when you're, when you're there, when you're doing that, like you've heard of people that have, have died of overdoses. You, you probably know some people have it. You never think it's going to be you. You just don't for whatever reason you, you feel unique. You don't feel like it's ever going to happen to you until of course it does. And it was a, it was the end of July in 2004. It was a hot New York city summer. I had, I, it, I hated myself completely I mean, utterly. I really, I had, I, I, I essentially chalked up my life to this. This is what it's going to be. I even saying this to you is so unbelievable for me where, you know, in comparison to where I'm, I am today, but it is, I did live this, you know, um, but I hated myself so much. I didn't, I didn't really want to live anymore. I didn't know how to stop using drugs and drinking. And so I chalked up my life to like, this is what it's going to be. I'm basically going to be a piece of shit. And that's it. Even though I had so many people in my ear because I had, I had great jobs and I was able to hold, hold on to these jobs and stick with these jobs. Uh, but I had people in my ear saying, what are you doing, kid? Why are you doing this? You're like, you're a, you're a good person. Like, why would you, why would you throw your life away? And I just couldn't, I, I heard them, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't apply it. I couldn't listen. You know, there's, there's, there's a big difference between hearing and, and listening. And so, um, anyway, I overdosed and, uh, somehow, some way I didn't die. And I promised myself that I was not going to ever 
do it again. And when I got out of that apartment, you know, the person that I was with somehow dragged me into a bathtub, got me into the bathtub, turned on the cold shower and just let the cold water hit me in the face, you know, um, and I was naked and I came to, and I survived somehow by the grace of, you know, the universe. I said, I was never going to do it again. And that night I found myself using again, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that that had happened to me, that I had, that I had overdosed and I walked out of there sober as ever because I was scared to death, literally. And I found myself right back at it that night. And uh, that's when I had kind of made a decision that I wanted to die. I, I, I basically said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go as hard as I can until it's over, just because I, I there's no way out. And the next two weeks are a blur for me, complete blur. I don't remember anything from that period. But I do remember the last time I got high. And uh, it was August 1st, 2004, two weeks after that overdose. I'd been up for, I think, two days. I was with two friends or friends. We were, it was hot as hell. We were on my rooftop in the East Village. And it was like eight o'clock in the morning. I knew that I had work the next day, or I knew that I had work in two hours because I had a double. It was a Sunday. I had a double on Monday. And they had said, we're done. We're going to call it. And I was just like, how can you possibly do that? Like, you can't do that. And they left. And I was alone with a lot of drugs and warm beer. And so I went back downstairs to my apartment. I caught, a, I caught myself in the mirror walking into my bedroom. I had like one of those wall mirrors. And I, I looked at myself and I said, you're a despicable human being. You don't deserve to live. Like literally, this, these are the kind of conversations I was having with myself at that time. And I wanted to kill myself. And uh, somehow I didn't. I, I passed out. And I woke up 16 hours later. I had slept through work. And that was the last time I got high. And my boss fired me. He told me he loved me, but he needed to not watch me die. And he wasn't going to allow that to happen on his watch. So he fired me. And it was devastating to me because that's all I had, my job. And so I begged him for my job back. And he told me that he would allow me to come back to work, but only to clean the restaurant. So he said, you can come back to work at eight o'clock in the morning. You got to call me when you get here. You got to do this for 30 days and you got to get sober. And if you're a minute late, you're fired. If I find out you had a single sip of alcohol or, or, or any kind of drugs, you're fired. You got to get sober. And so I took the opportunity. I had a small window to just take the opportunity. And I did. And I reached out to a friend who I knew was dating somebody that was sober. And these two guys came and rescued me. <laughs> and uh, they took me to a Muay Thai kickboxing gym. And I looked at these guys and, and I, I, you know, I didn't know anything about the sober world. I knew nothing, but I, I had thought of course, that it was just a bunch of losers, right? Like I'm a party guy, New York city, crazy kid. Like these, these dudes that, you know, these people that don't party at all, like they can't be cool. Like that was the way I thought, like my life is over. I'm never going to hook up with a good looking girl ever again. You know, I'm not, you know, like I used alcohol and drugs as this 
image um, that I thought like when I was outside was cool. But when I got, when I was alone, I hated myself. I hated myself so much that I felt like I had to hide behind this thing. And um, anyway, these two dudes were the coolest guys ever. They were covered in tattoos. They were Muay Thai kickboxing competitors. And they dragged me into a Muay Thai kickboxing gym. And they said, if you can listen to us, we're going we're gonna to walk you down a path of a life you would have never imagined for yourself. And I had no idea what that meant. But they said, we're going to kick your fucking ass, <laughs> literally and figuratively. We're going to tell you what to eat. We're going to give you a daily plan, very structured. And we're going to require that you go to Alcoholics Anonymous every day. And if you can do those three things, you're going to win. And so that's when everything changed. I'm, emo- I'm emotional talking about it. Woo, that came yeah, out I, I mean. That's when my whole life changed. Um, really, those two guys. Interrupting this episode to share with you how we keep this podcast going, and that is by you supporting us through trying out or subscribing to Meal One on CreaturesOfHabit.com. I am giving a 20% discount on your first order or your first subscription order, which is a serious discount. Meal One is a superfood meal. It is a blend of gluten and glyphosate-free oats. It is packed with 30 grams of plant-based protein, omega-3 fatty acids, a probiotic, digestive enzymes, vitamin D3. It also has chia seeds, flax seeds, pumpkin seeds, and a little bit of pink Himalayan salt. There are 37 grams of healthy carbohydrates and anywhere from 7 to 10 grams of fat depending on the flavor. You will be full for hours, people. I promise you, we developed Meal One to help you perform at your absolute best, to get that incredibly healthy and convenient edge on the competition. There is not a better, more convenient meal to start your day with or use as a pre- or post-workout meal. The macros are perfect and sourced with the cleanest ingredients in the game. Take your performance to the next level. Make your life much easier by saving time. Be able to eat healthy without sacrificing flavor and all while staying full for hours, making your urge to snack far, far less. Hop over to CreaturesOfHabit.com. That is CreaturesOfHabit.com. And use promo code K-O-H-P-O-D, the number 20 for your first order of meal one today. Back to the pod. So I was I was doing some homework leading up to this conversation and um, I, I read about the experience at the restaurant and, and the ultimatum and um, how that was a turnaround moment for you. One of the things that kept, you know, ringing in the back of my mind is leading up to that point, what was the most important thing in your life? Was it to be loved? Was it to you know, uh, to make money, what, what was driving you up until then? Every decision, my, my perception of life today, every decision we as human beings make, whether we are conscious of it or not, is in an effort to love and be loved. Everything is about that. Every, all the good decisions, all the bad decisions. So I was, I was ferociously hungry to be loved. And I just didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to love or be loved. And so I was, I was, uh, I was a hunter of love. (laughs) I still, I still am. I still am, but I make much better decisions today. So I guess the answer to that question is it was all in the name of love. Yeah. You know, I, I, I gathered that I, I, I wanted to confirm with you and, and, and hear it from you as the source. I mean, 
your journey is is one that I think is so special. And I think that one that, you know, it could really inspire the masses and, you know, people who have seen what you have turned that into must be incredibly proud of you. And, um, I, I'm proud of you and, you know, our relationship isn't even that intimate, but just kind of from what I've gathered so far, I'm, I'm, I'm sweating right now, just kind of off the back of, of you sharing all that. Um, I guess one thing kind of also stuck out with me and and that was your relationship with alcohol. And I I think it's particularly relevant right now and maybe switching gears a little bit. um, We are um, in a season where a lot of people are um, making the turn right now, maybe taking a break from alcohol and kind of re reassessing their relationship with alcohol and and what alcohol means to them. And yeah, you were probably in your twenties at that point when that happened or were you in your twenties when that happened? Uh, Want to confirm? 23. Yeah. And it's a much different stage of life, but, um, then, you know, when, when you're older on, um, but what has been the biggest takeaway you've, you've been sober ever since correct? I've, I've read that. Just want to confirm mm-hmm. what has been your yeah. biggest takeaway ever since, um, you know, you kind of turned off alcohol for the, for the long term, um, as opposed to just kind of a, a short term break. I think it's very difficult for people that struggle with alcohol to understand whether or not they're an alcoholic or not. Right. And when anybody, you know, reaches out to me, because at this point, people know my story. And anytime I share about my sobriety, I get a, a pretty healthy dose of, of people reaching out to talk to me about it. If your alcohol consumption interrupts your life consistently in any way, if your alcohol consumption interrupts your life consistently, not like you go out and party for a weekend and, you know, oversleep on a Monday for work once in a while, but consistently you struggle with going out on a Friday night saying you're just going to have a couple and coming to on a Sunday, not knowing what happened, you know, promising your significant other that you're not going to get angry anymore when you drink and you drink and you get angry cheating on your partner um, consistently because you're drunk. Like those problems, one could draw a direct line to alcoholic. And so I'm very careful about how I say this, right? Because I can never personally prescribe somebody the solution for alcoholics, which is sobriety. But if you're hearing this and you're like, man, like, I don't know, ask yourself that question. Does your alcohol consumption consistently interrupt any area of your life on a regular cadence? And if you do, and you're like me, stopping the problem is going to change your life in an unbelievably positive way. My life is unbelievably positive. I am able to do anything. I say I'm going to do, and I put my mind to anything. I'm not going to say I'm going to play in the NBA or the NFL or the MLB. I'm never going to be the world's strongest man or the fastest marathon runner. But anything that I say I'm going to do, where I where I believe there's a there's a there's a chance. So far, I've done. I've pulled off. When I got sober, if you told me 
that I was going to compete in a Muay Thai kickboxing kickboxing ring, I would have never believed you. That I was going to run multiple marathons, never would ever believe you. That I was going to be a professional bodybuilder, that I was going to be a husband in a marriage for 18 years, that I was going to be a father to two boys that I I love so much and they love me back genuinely. Um, that I'd be able to open up multiple businesses and create value and build cult. like those things. Never, never. I was, I, you know, I was a crazy city kid alcoholic. And so what, what's the biggest takeaway? Self-love and belief that I can do anything I put my mind to anything. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And you've put that on display and just like you said, and, and that's been one of the amazing things of, of watching you along the way is, um, even from a distance, y- y- you, s- you spew a conviction that is hard to kind of dispel. And it's like, if he, if he's going to say he's going to do it, then, um, it's hard to believe that he's not, a, it's fun to watch. Um, in the earlier stages, were there any bouts of withdrawal, um, whether it was from the alcohol or the drugs? <laughs> You know, I mean, it, like physical withdrawal, I was, it definitely showed up mentally for sure. Uh, my body was excreting toxins for a good, probably a good year. You know, like I had all sorts of skin issues. Um, you know, I never had like convulsions. Uh, I had to work through probably for the first two weeks. The The shakes were pretty bad for me. But, uh, you know, the interesting thing about it for me was I was done. Yeah. And I knew I was done. Like I had made a very conscious decision. And I think that's also something that I, I you know, like this conversation is actually very unique for me. Mm-hmm. I've, I've spoken a lot about this in the sober community, but I don't really get this deep into my story in the general public. And I'm, I'm happy that we're doing it because it's really evoking emotions for me that I'm, 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 I'm excited to feel, you know, in, in this setting, because I feel these, when I talk about this stuff, like when I talk about like the dark times and then I talk about my life now, I can't believe it, especially when it comes to my family. Yeah. Cause I never thought I was going to ever be able to have a healthy family life, you know? I thought I was doomed to following suit. You know, I, it was really hard for me as a kid. I didn't know that like, like now being a father for two boys, I, I, I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom the amount of even close to the dysfunction and the anger that I experienced as a kid for my father. I can't even fathom it. I am like, it just, it's, it's my, it's, it's truly mind boggling, flabbergasting how someone can have that kind of response to their, you know, project that kind of anger onto their children. And so I just get emotional thinking about it because like above everything else that I've been able to experience in sobriety, my family is by far and away my strongest and most cherished accomplishment. I'm so happy you said that. I will that. do anything. I, I, you know, I, I, I will 
they're my, they're everything for me. Yeah. I mean, it's apparent, it's apparent in, in what you put out there. Um, and, and that's why I said it in the beginning, because I, I wanted to dig into that a little bit. And, um, you know, when you think about what you had gone through, um, as a child, one thing I'm, I'm quickly picking up on is there is no manual for fatherhood. You know, your manual really is, you know, how, how you were loved and, and how you were taught to love and, you know, what you liked and what you didn't like and the things that, you know, you wanted to go out of your way to make sure that you addressed the day that you had kids and, and your way of setting the record straight, perhaps if things weren't done right the way, uh, you know, when, when you were growing up, but in your case, you know, you, you dealt with very traumatic, traumatic challenges and, uh, the type of challenges that, um, you know, require, a lot of time in therapy and, and a lot of time speaking to people and, and kind of working through. And even when you do sometimes work through them in therapy, if you're not constantly working on yourself, um, it's, it's sometimes easy to regress in, in a way, um, or you could be triggered. Um, so let me ask you, I mean, it sounds like you're, and, and I'm confident that you are in a place you want to be with your family, but let's say when you're not with your family, do you ever encounter triggers uh, of your childhood um, that make you question maybe yourself as a father? It is a never-ending, nonstop, self-awareness party. <laughs> Being the father, and I'm going to be very mindful about how I phrase this. I was going to say being the father I want to be, but I'm going to say the father I am. The father I am is one that pays attention to my children is one that's consistent with my kids. Um, when I'm not with them, there could be moments where I feel, you know, if I'm traveling for work or something like that, where I feel like, you know, should I be home? Is this something that is more important than being home with my kids? And, and I have to snap back to reality and say, Hey, like, I'm also a business person, right? Yeah. Like I'm not a traveling, I don't, I'm not like gone all the time. Um, and really at the end of the day, like I love hanging out with my wife and kids. Like I just love, I love it. I love it. It's like really what I look forward to. So I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big advocate for time blocking and staying consistent there. And so I time block in my calendar every day, my time with family. And I've had to rejigger things over the years to find like the right balance. Um, because I also know that like, I am the priority in my life. And I think I should mention that too. There's a few things that I want to mention before I forget one. Yeah. I just, just touching back on the alcoholic stuff and, and the drug abuse stuff. Like if you are struggling with alcohol and drugs, I just want to let you know, that A, it's okay, B, there's a solution, and C, you have no idea what it's like on the other side. I, I just want to mention that because I think it's very, very important. There is a solution. It's really fucking good on the other side. Like, it just is, and you might not think so right this moment, but I promise you, it is. Um, I am the priority of my life. I am before my wife, before my kids, before business, before everything, I am the priority. And that could come off as, 
self-centered and selfish. And you can like judge however you want, you know. I've learned over the years that if I am not at the top of my totem pole, everyone and everything around me doesn't get the best of me. And so I don't sacrifice time with my family and my business. I sacrifice my time by waking up at 4.45 in the morning to get a good hour and a half, hour, 40 minutes alone to focus only on me every single day. And it's, it's, yes, it's structured. Yes. It's disciplined. Yes. It's, you know, in some people's minds, a little too rigid and robotic. I'm an alcoholic and a real drug addict. I need that. You might not. So I'm not saying this is for everyone, but I know what I need after being in recovery for 18 and a half years. Like I know what I need to be cool. (laughs) You know, the last thing I'd ever want to do is throw it all away. Right. And it's like not unmanageable. I mean, un, un, unimaginable for me to one day just drink a beer, you know, like I don't think, I don't, I hope that that never happens, but if I'm, if I'm not on top of my shit, there's a chance that I veer off a little bit, you know? And so I, I, you know, but, but me, but us being a, the priority in our lives is, uh, is a philosophy that I really strongly stand behind because if we can take care of ourselves first and foremost, our ability to be present, available, and of service to others is just far stronger, right? Like, we're not happy with ourselves. We don't feel well. We're worried about our health. We're tired. We're lethargic. We're not really able to move as much as we want to. We're just showing up 50%. Yeah. If you can show up 80 to 100% every day because you've spent the time investing in yourself, you just got a better life. And everybody in it is going to reap the benefits of that. Yeah. You know? I'm done with my selfish shit by like 6.30 in the morning. I love My that. kids don't yeah. even wake up until 6.30, you know? No, I love it. And I agree with you wholeheartedly around, you know, just the idea of putting yourself first. It doesn't have to be, it's not, it, it is misconstrued sometimes as, as being selfish, but it's really not because to your point, you know, unless your cup is full and unless you are, you know, taking care of yourself, uh, you know, in all aspects, whether that means, you know, making sure that, you know, you get your workout in the morning or, you know, you do meditation or you're reading, whatever it may be, um, you're not going to bring a full cup to your family. And I, this is a conversation that comes up in my, my household a good amount too. And, and I encourage my wife all the time and, and say, you know, make sure you're taking care of yourself first. Um, so that way, you know, when you're here, you know, you're fully present and I do the same vice versa. That way, you know, I'm kind of trying to set the tone around as individuals in order to provide for others, you know, our cup needs to be full. Um, and I, and I think that's where, where it begins. And, you know, that, that leads me to another topic. And back in the day when, when you were going through your struggles and and your adversity, um, what was your relationship with fitness at that point? Did it even exist? Where, I mean, were you, uh, maybe elaborate a little bit more as to whether or not you were even in shape at that point. 
Yeah, no, I mean, from 13 to 23, there was no, no fitness, no nutrition, no self-love or self-care at all. It, it, it actually was the exact opposite. I didn't get like, you know, I wasn't like, you know, a, a totally out of shape. Yeah. Um, but I certainly wasn't probably couldn't run half a mile, you know, at that, at that time in my life, um, for those, for the, for that decade, um, I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, if not more, you know, along with an enormous amount of marijuana and, uh, sometimes crack, you know, like, like my lungs were, I, I, I put so much toxicity in my body, you know, that, uh, and that's really interestingly enough, how creatures of habit came to be and meal one, the product that we sell when those two guys sort of gave me this plan, they told me that they wanted me to eat oatmeal as the first thing I put into my body every day, because it was easy, satiating and healthy. And I had been feeding my body negativity for 10 plus years, they wanted me to, they wanted to help me find an easier way to start feeding my body positivity, literally. And so it started with this oatmeal ritual. And I've been eating oatmeal as my first meal of the day, every day to this very day, you know, and that's, and, and obviously over the years, I'd added a bunch of stuff to it and, you know, made it my own. But uh, when I launched Creatures of Habit, I took my oatmeal concoction and I put it into a pouch and I said, this is how I'm going to be able to tell my story and give people a habit that they can latch onto. This was a pivotal moment in my life of hope. You know, I needed something that was going to be easy and consistent to get me going on my journey. And then ultimately found out that it's like, not only is it a great habit to help people kickstart a journey in wellness, but also level up your already existing wellness journey with a super convenient, healthy meal that's got all the other stuff in it. And so really my story of darkness inspired incredible light for where I am in my life today. And, and, and it's so cool that I, I'm able to be able to tell this story and, and reach people that potentially are going through what I went through and yeah. share how I was able to walk out of it, you know? and implement a few things slowly that help me build. Interrupting this episode to share with you how we keep this podcast going, and that is by you supporting us through trying out or subscribing to Meal One on CreaturesOfHabit.com. I am giving a 20% discount on your first order or your first subscription order, which is a serious discount. Meal One is a superfood meal. It is a blend of gluten and glyphosate-free oats. It is packed with 30 grams of plant-based protein, omega-3 fatty acids, a probiotic, digestive enzymes, vitamin D3. It also has chia seeds, flax seeds, pumpkin seeds, and a little bit of pink Himalayan salt. There are 37 grams of healthy carbohydrates and anywhere from 7 to 10 grams of fat, depending on the flavor. You will be full for hours, people. I promise you, we developed Meal One to help you perform at your absolute best, to get that incredibly healthy and convenient edge on the competition. There is not a better, more convenient meal to start your day with or use as a pre- or post-workout meal. 
The macros are perfect and sourced with the cleanest ingredients in the game. Take your performance to the next level. Make your life much easier by saving time. Be able to eat healthy without sacrificing flavor and all while staying full for hours, making your urge to snack far, far less. Hop over to CreaturesOfHabit.com. That is CreaturesOfHabit.com. And use promo code K-O-H-P-O-D, the number 20, for your first order of meal one today. Back to the pod. Yeah, no, I think that's the most special part of all of this is that there are so many tidbits to your story that are relatable. And, you know, the, the takeaway here is that whatever it is that you're going through, even if you picked up on just one piece, whether it was the childhood, whether it was the alcohol and drug abuse, whether, whether it was the search for um, love and, and, and affection, you know, I think that is something that almost every single one of us at some point could take a tidbit and relate to. And, you know, you didn't come out of this and, you know, go into recovery and the next day run a marathon or the next day find yourself in the ring or the next day find yourself competing on a stage. Um, you know, so what I'm interested in now is we've established that fitness obviously wasn't a part of your trajectory for those 10 or 12 years. You know, let's talk about the buildup then because you were probably hell bent once you, once you started to get your mind right, like once, once everything was functioning again, and, and once you started to, you know, see the light and, and priorities were coming to, you know, you didn't, you didn't just run a 5k and you didn't want to just go out there and be average. You're not average. You're well above average. So let's talk about how, how we got from, um, going into recovery to, you know, you are an elite athlete. Let's talk about how, how that rise happened a little bit and, and kind of the mindset there and why you didn't settle for just, you know, taking a walk around the block every day just to be healthy. Well, I think I was put in a position. I was, I was really desperate, right? I, I was really in a, in, a, in a tight spot where I thought it was for me. And then I got, you know, the, the, the stars really did align where I was introduced to these two guys that and I needed, and I think that this is also something that I should say. Mentors have been massive in my trajectory. They still are. I have many mentors. I really do believe that having <clears throat> a muse, <clears throat> excuse me, having a having someone to look up to, having someone to genuinely want to learn from is success, you know, and I have no problem looking up really. I think looking up actually is the fastest way to get up. You know, like if you, if you never look up and you're always, you know, you're looking down or you're trying to look down on others, or you're even looking at eye level, like growth is not really happening as efficiently as it could if you're looking up. And so I always like to look up and I looked up to these guys a lot and uh, I, I wanted to impress them. I wanted them to, you know, so I listened to them and I felt like they had than I really wanted. And so for whatever reason, I was ready. And in 90 days of taking their advice and doing exactly what they told me to do, I got in the best shape of my life and I became obsessed with training and there would be days. I remember, you know, I remember very specifically 
it was like late September in New York and it was still hot. And I had been sober for over a month and my body was changing. The way I was thinking was changing. All of my friends had changed. I had actually didn't have many friends because a lot of the friends that i had had, you know, didn't really want to hang out with me anymore because I wasn't doing what they were doing. And I didn't really want to hang out with them anymore because they weren't doing what I was doing. And, um, I remember lying on my floor in, in my apartment, the, the air conditioner was on, it was still hot in the city. And I had felt free, like first time in a long time that I can remember. I, I remember like really thinking to myself, wow, I feel free. I'm not locked up. And, um, you know, for years I felt shackled to the life I was living. And so I just, said no matter how hard it gets i'm gonna i'm gonna do everything i can to be the best <laughs> i'm gonna be the best i want to be the best in sobriety i want to be the best at muay thai i want to be the best at my job and i'm gonna fight hard for that and i figured out a way to make discipline a big part of my life and it continued to grow and you know the reason why i i i i I'm such an advocate for fitness and nutrition as being sort of the foundation for any happiness, successful person. I'm not talking about monetary sure. and material shit. I'm saying happiness, you know, human beings have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. Right. And, um, only in the last, I don't know, 500 years or so have striving for things been prevalent in our lives, right? Pre that, so for, you know, whatever it's, whatever it is, 195,000 years, yeah. uh, we have been wired to survive, physically survive and eat yeah, and drink. Those are the three things where it's like, those were the biggest wins. You know, that's when you're like, yes, I won today. I didn't get eaten by the saber tooth tiger. I was able to fight off the crazy, you know, caveman down the cave and i was able to harvest some food i have won it's really hard to unwire that thinking yeah it takes thousands of years right so when we win in fitness it's like a it's like a um it's a guttural win it's a win that we can control it's a win that is unlike most wins when we get through a workout like as simple as that a run like you can't fabricate the feeling that you get after running a you know five miles it feels incredible yeah it just does you're done you're finished you just did something really awesome your body is is you're 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 wired to want to appreciate yourself for that you know eating healthy food similarly is another like massive win you know, it, it, because there's so many options today, right. And you can easily grab the bad stuff far, far easier than you can grab the good stuff. But the truth is, is that like, most of us don't feel really great an hour after eating an overly indulgent meal, right? Like yeah. every once in a while, for sure. Like on a, on a Friday or a Saturday, I want to go have a burger and fries with my family. Like I'm all for that. Everybody's having pizza, count me in. But 85% of the time, 
I feel so much better about myself with eating a healthy, nutritious meal. Yeah. It's a big win. It, you can win. You can control wins with fitness and nutrition. And if you can consistently control those positive wins day in and day out, your chance of success in all other areas of your life are far greater than you are. If you can, the things that you can control, how you move your body and what you put into your body can do one of two things, truly make you feel like you're winning or not moving and eating like a pig in some cases make you hate yourself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I like to use fitness and nutrition as the foundation. If anybody's, if anybody asks me, how can I just be a better person? I say, well, let's start with, let's start with how you move and what you consume. That's a great, you know? that's a great way to, to look at it. Um, I, I know I'm, I'm kind of, there's so many things I want to touch on, but I want to make sure I don't miss this. Yesterday, when I was, you know, reading up on the blog, um, you had mentioned um, when you had met your wife um, and how, you know, right away, um, you know, you knew that there was going to be something special and she played a, a really important role um, in this trajectory. I want to talk about your relationship pre-kids a little bit uh, and talking about um you know, maybe let you kind of tell me a little bit about how the love story happened, how it came to be, um, and how you work together to, um, make sure that, you know, she understood you were, you were coming with quite a package, you know, even if you were, even, even if you were on the path, you know, a positive trajectory and, and you had made it past, um, you know, the initial moments of, of recovery and, and all that. There's no doubt about it. You're coming with a with a very full bag uh, of luggage. Um, can you can you talk about that a little bit? Because I feel like there's a lot of people who are probably listening to this podcast and and looking at the family that you've built, the life that you've built, how special it is, how beautiful it is, and I'm sure that was not easy. So I met Donna. I was bartending, and Donna and her best friend Linda, and two other guys walked into the restaurant. They walked, it was, I worked in this really busy restaurant in the East Village and walked in and they, they were obvious models, you know, they were beautiful. Like everybody, you know, looked at them, including me, but they were with two guys. So I just like, you know, I was a bartender in a busy, you know, happening restaurant in the East Village. I saw beautiful women all the time. So I just, you know, treated them like normal people and just went about my business. And, uh, about an hour and a half later, they. I saw the two guys leave the restaurant and I was like, and they, and the girls weren't with them. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And then about 10 minutes later, Donna and Linda came and sat down at the bar. And so, you know, I was Turn like, the charm this on. Is, yeah, there's something going on here. Anyway, they hung out with me for hours. And by the end of the night, and I was not the guy mind, mind you, I'm, I'm also, like eight months sober at this time. Yeah. So I'm not drinking. I'm not partying. I'm not like being, you know, aggressive in any way in regards to like pushy towards yep. wanting to hook up with either one of them. But there was something that was happening that I felt it was necessary that I at least attempted to um, approach. 
And Donna had said that her birthday was in two days. So this was April 23rd, 2004. And I only know that because her birthday is April 25th. And we met, excuse me, April 23rd, 2005. And uh, I said, I just came out of my mouth. I was like, you got to let me take you out for your birthday. I'll take you to my favorite restaurant. And she said that she had plans with her girlfriends and it was, you know, I couldn't, she wasn't going to change those plans. And I came up with a very quick one right after that. And I said, well, I'm off tomorrow night. So why don't you let me take you out at 10 o'clock for dinner and we'll celebrate your birthday at midnight. Wow. And she said, okay. (laughs) And um, she gave me a kiss over the bar and I picked her up the next night and I took her to Blue Ribbon in the West Village. And she had had oysters for the first time. And I made her eat some bone marrow and oxtail marmalade. And then at midnight, I made sure that they brought out the best chocolate cake in New York City, which is their molten chocolate cake. And it was her birthday and we celebrated. And then we hung out for a couple of hours and it was awesome. We like made out at this like West Village. um, You know, we were both in our 20s. I was 24. She was 22. Yeah, we made out in this in this like old school New York City um, coffee shop. And then I dropped her off at home. And she ghosted me for two weeks after that. And of course, she ghosted me because those two guys, one of them was the dude that she was seeing. And she was really confused because she wasn't it wasn't her boyfriend, but they had kind of been seeing each other. And and she didn't know which direction she wanted to go in. And I reached out to her a few times and I, I didn't hear back. So I was like, all right, well, that's obviously not happening, even though I thought it was like a like a magical night. And also like she was, I mean, and is, but you know, she was one of the most beautiful women I'd ever been with, you know, on a date. And uh, two weeks later, I got a text message from her saying, Hey, I know it's been a while since we've spoken. I'm at little Frankie's. You want to meet for a little bit? And I was like, sure. And so I, I went down a little Frankie's and that was it, man. We were tied at the hip ever since. Um, three months into our relationship, I had essentially made my mind up that she was going to be the woman I was going to marry. I, we both, we fell in love with each other. I told her very, very clearly, you know, you just got to understand that I am new in this recovery world. I am an absolute animal with my fitness. And it's it's a it's a massive priority for me. And I look pretty at that already at that time, like I had developed this structure because these guys gave me this daily plan and I stuck to it. I really did. I woke up every morning. I went for a run. I came back. I had my oatmeal. I went to an AA meeting. I went to the gym. I trained really hard for two to three hours. I came home. I ate some food. I took a nap and I went to work. And that was like my life. And I said, that is what my life is. I would love you to be a part of it. Um, but I'm not going to change it because I, I'm, this is my, this is survival for me. And if you can support that. And she said, I support that. I support that. And, uh, and that's how we, that's how we, we grew our relationship. And, and also, you know, I think it was really healthy for the first five, six years of our relationship. You know, she was a very, very successful model. So she was traveling all over the world and she was in the air you know, more than she had feet on the ground. Yeah. 
So we had healthy distance between us often. And so it gave her an opportunity to live her life and me an opportunity to live my life, though we lived together. So when she was in New York, you know, for the first six months, she 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 pretty much she had her own apartment, but she was always at my place. And then we ultimately got got a place together. But three months in, I called up my grandfather and my father had passed away. And I really, you know, I probably wouldn't have called my father anyway, although maybe we would have mended our relationship. Um, who knows? But uh, I called my grandfather up and I said, hey, you know, I think I want to marry this woman. I'm in love. And he said, do you live with her? And I said, mm, I mean, not really. He said, well, here's my advice. Get an apartment with her if you love her that much and live with her for a year. And if you feel the same way after a year, you've got my blessing. And so that's what we did. We got an apartment together and we lived with each other for a year. And July 11th, 2006, I asked her to marry me in Tarmina, Sicily. Um. <laughs> and, and we got married a year later. And when was your first child? And so we've born? been together for, yeah, we've been together from really May two thousand and four till now. Wow. Um. And and yeah, when was your first child born? Uh, we had uh, Finley in two thousand and fifteen. Got it. So March seventh, two thousand fifteen. So we spent ten years. Got it. Without kids, and we traveled, and we, you know, had lots of sex, and. We, the two of us also like just getting into a relationship for a bit. Like I believe the, the, the key to success in a relationship is full transparency and in your face communication. And what do I mean by that? I mean, communicate, over communicate specifically when it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Similar to how I attack like business and and af and sport and and my life i attack communication in business in sport and in my marriage i believe in over communicating and not ever finishing a day with unfinished business yeah you know no, I, I agree um, we rarely we rarely go to bed angry with each other i agree and i think that's super critical. And I'm, I'm glad that you shared that. And you know what I'm loving about this episode is that we're, we're not even touching on the meatball shop. We're not talking about Seymour's. And honestly, I don't think we will because there's just so much uh, to get to here. I, I We possibly will. But what I want to get to now is that 10-year period, you know, pre-kids, um, you know, I don't know if, if you guys were always planning for kids or if it was something that, um, you know, you wanted to push off for any reason. But um, during that 10 year period, was was there an opportunity for you to um, work through your trauma and your identification of what a father should be? before you became a father? Um, you know, was there a lead up period where, you know, maybe she was helping you, uh, become ready for fatherhood? Um, or, or am I off here with the story? Well, you know, we were so young when we started dating that I really hadn't thought much about children in our later twenties. And she was, um, you know, she was modeling and pretty intensely. So it wasn't, you know, for a lot, for, the better part of that 10 year period of time, she didn't, she, she made it clear that she wasn't even sure if she wanted to have children. 
Got it. It's so crazy to say that now because she is the most incredible mother ever to live. Like my kids are so lucky. She is super mom. Um, but you know, I, I owe, well, I shouldn't say this because we all make our own decisions. No one can make anybody do really anything they don't genuinely want to do. But the way Donna supported me and loved me and, and supports and loves me till this day taught me everything I know about love. And I was terrified to have kids because I didn't know if I was going to continue the chain of abuse that my father had and his father did to him. And, and so it was really scary for me, honestly, I, I, I didn't feel like I had it in me to be that person, but I just didn't know. And we were very, I was very communicative about that. She knew of course my story and you know, what, what, what I went through And once we decided that kids were going to be something that was part of our story, she convinced me that I am too loving a person to conduct that way. And she was right. She was right. Um, I am the, I am the exact opposite of what my father was in fatherhood. So you know, we didn't talk much about kids for the first five years, six years. And then when we started talking about kids, I was terrified. And I think she was too. It took us a while to get pregnant. We had to do IVF. Mm-hmm. And uh, we finally got pregnant. And I could say March 7, 2015 and September 22nd, 2017 are the two of the top three days of my life. Day number one. Um, well, really, day number one was when I got sober. Mm-hmm. Day number two was when I married Donna. Day number three and four were the kids' birthdays. And uh, yeah. That's super special to to hear recapped. And I I just feel like, um, you know, like I said, parenthood, fatherhood in particular for me, but a parenthood for anyone, it really doesn't come with a manual. And we all have our own uh, experiences in life and our own hesitations when it comes to being the parent that we wanted for ourselves or or being the person that we wanted. Um, And, um, you know, I, I, I think that your story is one that really stands out with regards to understanding what it is that you didn't want and, and how it impacted you and doing everything in your power to once you made the commitment, surround yourself with mentors, like you said, but then to ultimately find a life partner who compliments you so well and who realizes how important it is um, for you to see your capability to love and then bring it out of you. Um, and I think that's so super special. And and I, I think that, you know, I, I want everyone out there who listens to this episode to kind of soak that in, to understand that, you know, we are all worthy of being loved and 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 loving the way that we want to um and it's just a matter of doing everything that we can to put ourselves first like michael said it earlier on uh but then also making sure that you know we are seeking out those around us that can help complement um th- that that objective um 
Michael, when it comes to to your kids, um, and and you know, now that um it's been a couple of years of having kids, um, I guess I don't one day you're gonna have to share your story with them. And I feel like I've known you to be someone who is uh, open, honest, transparent, who owns his shit, for lack of a better statement there and experience. Do you, um, do you have any musings about how you'll be approaching, you know, that conversation with them and letting them know what you had gone through? Um, you know, or is that something at this point you haven't really thought about? I believe in honesty and transparency. The truth will set you free, right? That's been that's been my my story to date. And I believe when they're ready, you know, my older son, I was giving them a bath a few weeks ago and my older son said something to me that was like out of nowhere. And he said, was your daddy mean to you? And I don't know where he got that from. I don't know if he overheard a conversation or Donna talking to me or I don't know. And I said, you know, buddy, my dad was a little mean to me. Yes. And he said, like, how was he mean? And I said, well, he just didn't say the nicest things to me. I didn't want to get into obviously yeah. Yeah. Uh, the nuts and bolts. They're very young. But he said, like, what did what did he say? And I said, he said things that I would never say to you. And let's 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 leave it there for now. But just know that everybody's different. And, um, just because somebody does one thing doesn't mean, you know, the next person is going to follow suit. And so one thing that I'll share that I do with my kids every night that I think is, um, I think kids want two things. This is, and and this is me, me writing my own blueprint for fatherhood. They want attention, positive attention as much as they, as much as you can give. They don't care about how much money you have, the businesses that you've built, the amount of weight you can lift in the gym, the distance that you can run. All they want from you is attention, positive attention. When they ask you a question, they want you to be attentive. When they show you something that they've done, they want you to appreciate it. So. If your kids are talking to you and you find yourself on your cell phone and you find yourself getting frustrated that your children who only want your attention in life are interrupting your social media scrolling, you need to ask yourself a question. Where, what do I want for my family? Right? Yeah. So that's one thing. They want attention. The second thing they want is consistency. They really thrive on consistency and structure. I learned that from my wife. My wife is very structured and consistent with the kids. And it's, we, we, we happen to have like really, really incredible children. They're so well-balanced and well-behaved and kind. But since they're born, you know, we, we, go, we trade nights on and off who puts the kids down. And every single night, with my kids, our sleep time is consistent. We brush our teeth. I do a toothbrushing contest with them. So I, I basically, <laughs> we, we get into the bathroom 
And I will say something like coming out of the left corner, he's standing in at 49 inches tall, weighing in at 47 pounds. He comes from Brooklyn, New York city and lives in upstate New York. His name is Finley, the animal turnout. And then <laughs> I, I do the same this. thing for Dakota. And I say, hey, fighters, are you ready? Wait. And they have a toothbrushing competition who can toothbrush the best. And, uh, you know, I switch off winners every night and then, you know, I make sure they use the bathroom and then we go into their bedroom and, um, I turn on a white noise machine and we read two books and then they crawl into bed. And as they crawl into bed, I say, all right, boys, give me the 12 things. And this has been happening since they're born. So they have these things memorized. And the 12 things that we say every night is always protect your brother. Ladies always go first. Squeeze and eyes, which is handshake. When you give a handshake, you give a firm handshake and you make eye contact. Remember people's names. Lift up the toilet seat when you need to go to the bathroom. Put down the toilet seat when you're done. Look to the left when you're crossing the road. Look to the right when you're crossing to the road. Kindness always wins. Be kind to mommy when daddy's away. Always walk with courage. And I love you. And they, each one of them says it and they love it. It's not like, I'm like, all right, give me the, tell them, you know, I'm like, these are the values that I'm trying to instill in my kids. They have no idea what they mean yet, but they know them by heart and they say them every single night. And then right after that, every single night I say, boys, you know, that you can be anything you want to be when you grow up and your dad's going to support you as long as you do it for yourself and nobody else. And then I say, what's it going to take? And they say courage. And I say, and what is courage? And they say, being afraid and doing it anyway, as long as it's for the good. And then I crawl over into each of their beds and I tell them I love them and I give them a big hug and a kiss. And I let them know that I'll be there for them no matter what. And then I hang out in there for five minutes in quiet and they go to bed. And that's my favorite part of my day. It's amazing. Honestly, it's amazing. That's super special. And, um, I hope every parent out there listens to that and not necessarily to replicate it exactly, but to pick up the tidbits and apply it where it makes sense for for them. Because you're right, consistency does matter and, and it, consistency is noted and consistency is watched and um, it, it's really setting the the stage for where the, where they're going to go from from there. And you know, I just want to say thank you, Michael. Honestly, your story, um, it's truly exemplary. It's one that has so many takeaways. It's one where um, the emotions are just kind of running all over the place. And, you know, to everyone out there listening to this, again, you know, we we didn't even scratch the surface of Michael's many accomplishments and, and some of the you know, the incredible things that he's really well known for. But I think that he'd agree with me that, you know, his family is his greatest accomplishment. And I'm really glad that we got to spend a lot of time on that today and, and got to touch on that. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it today. Brother, I, I really enjoyed it. It was very cathartic for me. And I, I just want to say one last thing to everybody listening. Um, seek discomfort. Change is possible for anyone and everyone. It doesn't matter how far gone you you, you think you've 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 been. Uh, change is totally possible, and just know that my experience shows me that we are all lovable, and we can all love. And uh, I really am grateful that you had me on the show. 
And there you have it, folks. I hope we delivered some valuable content for you to implement into your life on a daily basis. Please remember that our habits have the power to make us or break us. Replacing bad habits with great ones is the answer to living a life of happiness, optimism, and high performance. We are capable of achieving anything. We all have what it takes to give it all we've got. Commit to one great habit each day and truly commit and watch how everything in your life starts evolving from good to great. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a five-star rating and a nice review that will help us grow this podcast, bring on more amazing guests, and continue to deliver invaluable content on a weekly basis. Lastly, please share this podcast with any friends or family that you think might appreciate it. And always remember, want plus do equals have. Until the next one, fam. Peace.